Well, despite the applause, I have to be honest. It's always good to leave, <laughs> but it's also good to return home. This was sort of a banner year for me. This was my 50th anniversary of going into central Ontario at the guest originally of Becky's parents. I was considering uh, marriage to her, but when I went to this place, I was sure that this was the woman for me. <laughs> now, I would just say to you, the Canadian fires were still out of control across north central Ontario and Quebec when we arrived at our summer cabin on June the 28th. In fact, our float plane flights, we have to fly our gear in, were delayed because of some rain, but mostly because of smoke. The day before, the pilot could not see anywhere in the region. He was grounded for a long time. In fact, several communities in north-central Ontario, just a week before, received leaflets dropped from the Air National Guard of Canada with a simple message. Take 20 pounds in 20 minutes. You must leave now. You see, in these isolated communities where there's a wall of forest, beautiful lakes for sure, you would not know until it was too late. And so even when we left, fires were still springing up. One, for example, in Killarney, which is the North Georgian Bay. The pilot said to us every time he took the flight, he saw more results of lightning strikes and fires that has set the Taiga, that's what it's called, the great forest that rings Canada and Russia on fire. But eventually, for which we praise God, the skies cleared. This is the panorama view that I first saw 50 years ago of the camp on Lake Rohai. And this is our view from the shoreline looking out across the lake called Rawhide to Thunder Mountain. It's seven miles by about five. Glacier created, no doubt, with the deepest hole 504 feet deep. The next photo is not the Marriott. You missed the cabin. Back it up. Or I missed the cabin. There you go. That's not the Marriott. That's our home for a month. The logs were on site in 1940 when a Scot came, having bought Lumberjack Camp Number 19, and it's called the Cook Cabin. That's our home. The green boat is my office for a month, <laughs> dog included. And that's why I spend many hours of time remembering how wonderful it is to feel the strike of a lake trout or a smallmouth bass. All I needed for contentment was my Bible, fishing gear, and stunning views of creation, like this eagle that we saw every day after I would fillet fish, I would carefully lay the carcass on a log. And in the early hours or late in the evening, he would come. And one day, we recorded him flying away. Let's see it. His only predator was a larger eagle called a golden eagle. 
the two of them are fighting for dominance in the camp. The Golden Eagle was considered to be extinct in central Ontario. But seven years ago, I saw one and took a photograph. I submitted the photograph to the proprietor, Ken Luciani, who has the lease on the property, and he turned it over to the Ministry of Natural Resources that stopped a logging project for 10 to 15 years. Because within 10 miles, you cannot log or mine if there is a golden eagle in the camp. Their wingspan is 2.5 meters. They are incredible to behold. And so for a month, we are off the grid with no electricity, no plumbing. But after a month of solitude and serenity, we always face a mental and spiritual shock when we return. It's hard to re-engage with the modern world in the grip of, yes, chaos and, yes, confusion. But it's impossible to hide. Oh, I have tried. So to fortify ourselves, we seek what David the shepherd king wrote about in Psalm 23 and Psalm 55. He said this in Psalm 23, that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And there he restores my soul. But then listen to Psalm 55 in the Living Translation. Becky found this some years ago. David wrote this. Get me out of here on dove wings. I want some peace and quiet. I want to walk in the country. I want a cabin in the woods. I'm desperate for a change from rage and stormy weather. And so you are all just like me. You can't perhaps fly into north central Ontario, but you can go into a quiet place. It might be your hammock. It might be your neighborhood on a late afternoon walk in the month of August when there's no lawnmowers going. It might be a trip, a day trip to the Poconos. It might be a picnic with family or friends, but you need the peace that only God can give, and he seems to do it well in green places. So back to the idea of peace and contentment for just a moment. A few days before we left, I received this Father's Day card from my son, Eric. It shows a rock, which is typical to rawhide, and it shows a pine tree. And this is what he wrote about Father's Day. Writing to you, Dad, I look out at Lake Michigan, churning and warming up slowly for another summer, thinking about the way you would always be the first one up at home or when we were traveling or at Rawhide. I know that your quiet contemplation and your living in Holy Scripture shaped the whole of your life, year after year, little by little. You modeled that priceless habit and rhythm for me. And I am and may be beginning to see how I too have been shaped year after year like a river carving out the land. And so I thank you for the gift of your devotion to our master. I'm proud to carry the legacy of quiet trust and I hope my children might someday say the same of me. I love you. He wrote, your son Eric. 
Now, I just want to say this. I don't take credit for this discipline. It started with the gift of a daily reading plan. The first one given to me by Reverend David Van Dam, the pastor of university students at Central Michigan University, and then by a representative of the Navigators, Chuck Romine. And it was interesting because the, the, the little price tag was still on it. Five cents. Today, 50 years later, with four children and 12 grandchildren and the privilege of shepherding the people of God, I feel like every Christian father who longs for the blessing profoundly expressed by the Apostle John who wrote this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. But as many of us in this room know, the Christian faith of our children and grandchildren and of nieces and of nephews and of many friends is being challenged every day by waves of deception that are provoking denial and disobedience. We are witnessing a great falling away in our day. And I can't get my mind off the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 18 when he said this, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? You should hear the talk in Canada. The church has nearly collapsed. It's estimated that between 12 and 14% on any given Sunday are worshiping anywhere in our northern neighbor's sanctuary. In the third decade of the 21st century, a foreboding atmosphere like smoke from the Canadian fires has made us breathless with a sense of helplessness. Suddenly, it seems that every place on the planet is overwhelmed by soaring heat. And as the temperature rises, hope declines. Countless lies, shocking hypocrisy, have provoked millions to turn away from the guardrails of freedom and from the faith of their elders. Truth to be true must be on display. Words lose their meaning and power when God's truth doesn't shape our lives. To be a follower of Christ is to be different. We are called to a new creation. We are called to be a new creation, slowly becoming over the time of our lives the image bearers of God that we were always intended to be. For 500 years, the church birthed by the Reformation used creedal statements and confessions to articulate the content and the hope of our faith. But to a 21st century techie, those creeds seem like museum pieces. I hear this often. I hear them say, we hear the words, but they have lost their meaning. The earliest Christian creed, however, was simply three words. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. But this public declaration 
of loyalty to this unseen God became a self-inflicted death sentence when understood as disloyalty to the Caesars of Rome who demanded to be worshipped as gods. Perhaps you are aware of this symbol taken from a catacomb in Rome. It's called ichthus. It's the Greek word for fish. When I went off to university, I wanted to be an ichthyologist, someone who studied fish, as a liminologist, someone who studies streams. So you see, when I go to Canada, it's a part of a calling <laughs> to be a marine bi biologist, never knowing I'd wind up in the church as fishers of men and women and young people, which is why we do this at camp. It's called ichthus, which is the Greek word for fish. The meaning is found in the acrostic of the Greek word, where the letters form these words. Jesus, Christ, God, Son of, Savior. And so when under threat in early years, Christians used the fish to mark meeting places and, yes, tombs, or to distinguish friends from foes. I read that it's been told that when a Christian met a stranger on the road, they would sometimes draw one arc of the simple fish in the dirt. And if the stranger drew the other arc, they knew they were safe in the company of like-minded believers. But as time marched on, the followers of Jesus in the first and second and third centuries needed more than symbols. They needed to articulate their loyalty by answering this question. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Now, this was not a literate society. And Bibles were not printed yet. And only Augustine and the great leaders of the church knew language well enough to study the Latin and the Greek and the Hebrew. And so God kept a creed as time marched on, the creed that we will study this month. It has endured over time. Like a baton in a relay race, it's been passed from generation to generation. It's been translated into over 300 languages, providing a clear summary of the main points to answer the question. I'll put it to you again. What do Christians believe? What do we believe? What do I believe? It has survived battles over belief more successfully than others. Despite its name, none of the 115 words in English come from the original New Testament apostles, those leaders who were handpicked by Jesus Christ. The text, originally in Latin, dates to the early days of the church, and scholars have found copies of the original dated to the second century. But the current form, printed in your bulletin, I'd have you turn to it, that we will recite and examine over the next three weeks after today, first appeared in the sixth century in Latin. It is attributed to the apostles because every word and phrase reflects their teachings as recorded in the New Testament. 
it is also found to be consistent with the earliest letters and the earliest sermons that were kept by the leaders of the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century church. Now, first of all, while the creed summarizes the teachings of the apostles, let me make the point, it does not cover all the details and principles that they taught. Second, the word creed in Latin means to believe or to entrust. So when we read it privately or say it publicly, we are making a confession. And the word confession means to say the same thing or to agree with, in this case, God. In that sense, we are not only declaring our belief in God, but also that we believe what God says about our condition. That he gets it right. He knows we're helpless, like Bob prayed. He knows we're in trouble. We agree when we say, I believe, that we are hopelessly lost and broken by sin. Therefore, by faith, we embrace the creed as our own. So think of it as answering the most basic and important question. What must I believe to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ? Dr. Stan Gale, in his excellent book that I have read week after week in Canada and day after day, examining carefully his excellent book, Embracing the Apostolic Faith, wrote this. He wrote that the creed is markedly Christian, holding forth the only God in this triune unity, the emphasis, though, is not God in his eternal being, but God in his redeeming work. At the heart of the creed is the message of God's redeeming love, the message of Camp Treasure Island, the message of Springton Lake, the message of God to our hearts even today, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, in many churches, this is the tradition. We all stand. Let's stand together. The creed will be on the large screen or in your bulletin. And the leader says, Christian, what do you believe? And then we answer. So let's do it. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. You may be seated. Today, we'll look at the first phrase. The emphasis is the Father. Next week, the second, where the emphasis is the Son. The third, the Holy Spirit. And the fourth, the promise about life still to come. First of all, I believe in God. 
the creed begins with a personal confession. Dr. J.I. Packer, one of the great leaders of the 20th century, his classic book, Knowing God, second only to the Bible, formed my own mind to help me understand this great pursuit of knowing God, described the phrase like this. I am professing my conviction that God has invited me to this commitment, and I'm declaring that I have accepted his personal invitation. That's what I mean when I say I believe. Our confession expresses personal faith. For about 20 years, I was in the church, not often, but often enough, but not in Christ. The transition occurs when God changes your mind and your heart. Now it's not what we believe only, but what I believe. Our confession expresses it about the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three parts. The object, however, and the focus of our faith is God. There's a lot of confusion here. Christians don't just believe in something. We believe in someone. And so in saying this, we are anchoring ourselves to the living God. Now, did you see there's an anchor up here? I didn't put that here as a prop, but it's a good one. <laughs> I use an anchor in Canada. I don't need one quite so big. My boat is a lot smaller. But if it gets placed in the right sand, on the right angle, at the right time, in the right direction, only a hurricane can move me off that spot. We are secure in Christ. But the question needs to be asked. 20 centuries later, does it really make a difference? I say yes. Just ask Bob Schultz and his three brothers who are grieving the unexpected death of their father, to be sure, but they are also rejoicing in the sure hope of eternal life for their dad and one day his glorious resurrection because he said, I believe, son. I believe. Does it really make a difference to Kim Falk? I say yes. Her father died on Friday, July the 28th, and then next day, her sister died. And she wrote to our elders, wanted you all to know that after a heart attack at 2 a.m. early Friday morning, my dad went home to Jesus at 11.30 last night. He was surrounded by his family all throughout the day. God is good especially to me because he allowed me even to return home to the USA for his homecoming. She was in Malawi, but God brought her home and her dad is home. No one says it was good about death unless I can say, I believe. Does it really make a difference? Yes. Just ask the friends of Dolores Learn who died on Sunday, July the 16th. Now, years ago, sadly, Dolores was inflicted with cancer, and she survived. But more importantly, some time before, she had come to saving faith in Christ. 
And I mean, I mean, it locked into her mind. It locked into her heart. And when the doctor said, you've got cancer, she said, it, it doesn't bother me. Because if I die, and I'd rather die to be with Jesus, I know where I will be. For 20 years, she was dying. Every time you'd see her, she says, you know, I'm dying. <laughs> I have rarely met someone with such confidence and assurance, which I will speak about at her memorial right here on Friday, August 18th at 11 o'clock, and you are invited to come. She invited you before she died. Just like she invited me, she said, now, Pastor Rick, I might die while you're gone. I said, Dolores, you've been telling me that for 15 years. But I promise you that if you do go to be with Jesus, that I would be honored to tell your friends and family what you believe about him. Yes, it makes a difference. She was just like the Apostle Paul in confidence who wrote this to the church at Philippi. For to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ, so I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go to be with Jesus. That would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. And that's what her children told me on Wednesday. Mom spoke like that for over 20 years. Now, the source of this gift of assurance and of confidence is the gift of saving faith. And so what is faith? Well, we read about it in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. She was hoping and the conviction of things not seen. She was sure. The word by the Spirit of God gave her the conviction that her soul was secure like an anchor in Christ because she can say and did say a thousand times, I believe. But let's be clear. This is not a close your eyes and hope faith. It's not foolish. It's not walking off a ledge faith. It's intelligent. It's noteworthy. It's evidentiary. We see the evidence of God all around us in the blue sky, in the sunshine, in the stars at night. Creation shouts the glory of God or in the wonder of life itself. In every face, in every eye. This faith means commitment. This faith means obedience. This faith demands Trust. I have flown too many miles, but I wasn't going anywhere until I stepped onto the plane. By doing this, I was making a personal statement that I trusted in the four forces of flight. Lift, thrust, drag, and weight. I knew nothing about aeronautics. A little bit about meteorology, which got me into trouble. I liked the fact that the pilots were well-trained, and I preferred new planes over borrowed or used. 
I smile when I think about the lady who took the seat next to me years ago. She was obviously, I could see it right away, very nervous. In fact, trembling. Trembling. And I leaned over to give her confidence about how well the plane was made. And the pilots were well trained. And she looked at me and she replied, nope, I'm not going to put my weight on the seat. Nope, not going to do it. Run to Jesus Christ. He is secure. He is confident. He is trustworthy. He will hold you and never let go. You can put your weight on that seat. Second of all, this creed declares that we can trust in the Father Almighty. Now, that phrase actually never occurs in the Bible, Father Almighty. When the creed refers to God in this way, it points to a relationship with God the Son that is the focus of the next and largest section. This connection, this stress is on his redeeming work. The Father is almighty, but he's a father who shapes his love by the gift of his Son. You see, our Heavenly Father wants His children to come home. The Apostle John describes His homecoming so eloquently in John chapter 1, verses 11 to 14, one of my favorite passages. John, with joy, he writes, He came to His own, but His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, he gave the sure right to become the children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but born of God. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And third and finally in that first phrase, this creed declares that our Father is maker of heaven and earth. Now in July, this is my habit, I try to stay away from commentaries and theological books and read in a new direction in the summer. I took two books, Searching for the Stars on an Island in Maine by Dr. Alan Lightman, a Harvard physicist. In it, he describes the night while looking at the stars when he was overcome by the overwhelming sensation that he was merging with something larger than himself, an eternal reality, an eternal unity, something absolute and immaterial. In other words, creation was speaking to his heart. But even by the end of the book, he's not quite there yet. The second book, was by the science editor of the New York Times. It was called The Lonely Hearts of the Cosmos, The Scientific Quest for the Secret of the Universe. It's a story of what took place nearly a half a century ago when a small band of researchers equipped with a new 200-inch telescope in Southern California and born of scientific optimism embarked on the greatest intellectual adventure in history, the search for the origin and fate of the universe. Let me just say as a sidebar, Bob DiGiorgio and I did not talk about his introduction. 
I leaned over to him. The Holy Spirit speaks in unity sometimes here among us. That's today. They found three possibilities. The universe is self-created. They called it the Big Bang. The second, the universe is eternally self-existent. They called it the steady state. And the third, which they did not consider, the universe came into being by someone who is self-existent. For centuries, this has been called creation. The Bible does not provide a scientific description of the origin of the universe, but it clearly provides an answer to the question, who did it? Who did it? And here's what it says in the first sentence of this book. In the beginning, God created the heavens. This is, behind me, the first photo taken by the James Webb Telescope. It was a 12-hour exposure. The focal point was about the size of a grain of sand for 12 hours. It was called by astronomers a dark spot. What you see in that photograph are seven thousand galaxies the ones that are moving away from all the others at nearly the speed of light it was first shown to the world by the president on July the 11th 2022 the Netflix documentary that Bob referred to the astronomers when they saw it had an epiphany they were weeping and weeping, and weeping. The heavens declare the glory of God. So it says in Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is a photo taken by Apollo 8 on the way to the moon. And then on the way home, they looked up over the horizon and they saw our home, our only home, our last home until we go to be with Jesus. And then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. These are just a few. Marvelous to behold. Every day we went to this one tract of beach and we saw moose tracks. Every day washed away and there they were again. Large tracks. I saw moose scat and bear scat and I saw beavers. Boy, they wake you up and they slap their tail. Loons every day, bald eagles, golden eagles, and an array of insects, some of which I wonder, Lord, why did you make them? <laughs> and then God said, let us make man in our image. You see, the great sin of humanity since the beginning of time is the refusal to acknowledge God as maker of heaven and earth. I believe. In God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and to give him the glory that is both due his name 
and for the great gift that we would say to him, oh, God, thank you. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans made it very clear that creation testifies to the reality of the creator when he wrote this, Romans 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Centuries before glass optics and certainly before the telescope, and no possibility of dreaming about the James Webb telescope. David the shepherd wrote this. The heavens, oh, I see it every night. The heavens, my friends, declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim every day to me his handiwork. But a blind person cannot will themselves to see. No. We all need, we all needed the intervention of God. We need him to act upon our hard and dark hearts. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians about this new creation work. Listen to it. For God who said, let light come out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's where we go next in the creed. We go right from the Father to the face of the Son. Now listen in closing to this quote from Dr. Stan Gale, who wrote this in his book about the Apostles' Creed. The starting point for the Apostles' Creed is the consideration of God. We make eye contact in faith with the God that we believe in. And we must not take our eyes off of him for a moment. And so I ask you, have your eyes been opened to see the wonder of God? Can you remember the day the hour, the moment when I could see, oh, before I was blind, but now I can see. Or are you perhaps even today being made more aware of your need for a Savior who is standing before us, though we cannot see him, saying, come to me, all you who are broken, and heavy of heart, and I will receive you to myself because I love you. As we shall see next week in the next section of the Creed, where Jesus, as God's only Son, is presented in his saving work as the basis for faith, he is the Son of God sent by the Father to save. A closing song today is, Yet Not I, But Christ Through Me. And I love the close of it, repeated several times. To this I hope, to this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. 
When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's stand and sing together.